All right, kids, you can head off to Sunday school with your teachers. And everybody else, if you want to turn with me, our scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 16 in the New Testament. This is called the parable of the shrewd manager. And we're going to talk about that word shrewd and what it has to do with discipleship. So this is Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 1 through 15. Listen to the word of God. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Well, the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second one, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this, and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we um, come to the scriptures. Lord God, thank you for your word, and even as challenging as a parable like this is to understand, Lord, we pray that you would shed light on it. Help us to see clearly uh, what you mean and what it means for us, that we would respond with lives that are devoted to you. Um, May you be glorified in and through this time of study, and may you be our teacher and our guide. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, people have a really hard time with this parable. Anybody a little bit confused right now? 
because Jesus seems to be advocating for the dishonest use of money in the parable, right? So last week we looked at a couple of parables and we made sure we demonstrated who, who each person in the parable represented because it's, a, it's an imaginary story meant to teach us something. So rich man that owns the property equals God, right, is the master. The shrewd manager are the disciples, right? They're the people who are listening to the message. How are we to behave? And it says, the, the confusing verse, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is using a provocative negative image to make a point. He's trying to capture the attention of people so that they understand how radical the kingdom of heaven really is. Um, We use negative examples to communicate a positive message all the time. For instance, uh, I, I was coaching my kid's soccer team years ago, and I said, Uh, after one game where um, we really, really beat the other team bad, I said, I was so proud of them. Our soccer team just crushed the other team. I mean, we completely demolished them. Now, was I advocating for the physical damage, for physical damage to be done to little children? No, of course not. I was trying to communicate with a, a metaphor how badly we had won, or how goodly we had won. Jesus does this elsewhere. It's not the only place where he uses a negative image. He compares his own second coming to a thief in the night. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like a thief coming in the middle of the night. You'll never see it coming. Is he advocating for stealing? Of course not. He's using a negative image to communicate something positive. He talks about also when he's uh, saving people that it's like Um, binding up a strong man in order to ransack his house. That's Jesus binding up the strong man and ransacking his house. Jesus is about using parables to catch our attention so that he can get his point across, okay? So in this parable, don't try to make Jesus say more or less than he's actually saying. We're going to unpack it, but I want to make sure we're clear. He has one point he's trying to make, and it's not to be dishonest. He clarifies that later. The point he's trying to make is that we should use the wealth that we have to prepare ourselves and other people for the kingdom of heaven. We should use what we have been given for the purposes of God. Now, let's talk about this shrewd manager. So this guy, this servant, was apparently a really horrible manager and ought to have been fired based on how he behaves. He, he makes this, but he makes this brilliant final move. He reduces the debt of some of his master's debtors, hoping to kind of ingratiate himself to them so that after he's fired and loses his job, he has a place to go stay. And notice his rationale in verse 3. Jesus is funny. He says, let's see, I don't want to do hard labor, and I don't want to beg, so I'll just lie and cheat. (laughs) What a great idea. The guy is a real piece of work. Um, But regardless of the level of his self-centeredness and, and, and unfaithfulness, the master in the parable commends him because of his shrewdness. That word shrewdly, we don't use very often. He had acted shrewdly, it says. It means he made an unexpected and clever move. He, he, he pivoted the situation which was working against him to end up working for him so that 
He knew his time with the master was going to be really short, and so he used what little power and influence he had left to set himself up for what was next. He thought to himself, well, I'm fired either way, so what do I have to lose, right? Now, this is the the key thing to understand. The master is not being commended for being untrustworthy. He is untrustworthy, but that's not what he's being commended for. He's being commended for being shrewd, for recognizing the situation he was in and acting on it. So he saw that the wealth that he had control over was not going to last much longer. He knew that how he used it now would matter after his position was over, and what comes after he's fired is what really mattered. That's what he understood. So he's commended for understanding the moment he was in, and he makes this brilliant, if untrustworthy, plan. In the same way, the children of God have to understand the moment that we are in, and this is Jesus' point. Like the manager, the wealth and possessions that we have now will not last, right? How we use our wealth now, though, matters to God. So the things that we have don't matter for eternity, and yet how we use them now does matter. And what is in the kingdom of heaven in eternity is of infinitely higher value than anything that we can, that we do have or could have in this life. So his point is that we should use the wealth that we have to prepare ourselves and other people, our friends, for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he unpacks, he's clear about the, the meaning of the, of the parable in, in the second part of verse 8. He says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's not encouraging his disciples to be more like the people of the world, except in one key area, and that is commitment to the ultimate goal. So what he's saying is that people who are consumed with money, uh, who are consumed with security and prosperity that money can bring them, they're willing to do whatever it takes to gain more for themselves, right? That is the definition of the pursuit of wealth in this world, of, of making wealth into the ultimate goal. He's saying, you shouldn't do that, but you should view your eternal dwelling in heaven and the possibility of other going there with that same kind of high level of commitment. You're willing to give everything in order to make that future heavenly dwelling place a reality for you. The manager used his wealth to make friends that would give him a place to stay. You do the same thing. Use your wealth to create a place for you and your friends to stay. Not now, but for eternity. So be generous with what you've been given. Use it outwardly to help other people. Use it to help them get what they need. Use it to help them get to know God. But don't hoard it and sit on it for yourself it's not going to last. I love the way uh, one author, pastor, John Piper, some of you may be familiar with his work, he writes about this. This is the way he characterizes it. Don't worry about being a shrewd investor in this age where you can provide a future that will only fail. Instead, be a really shrewd investor by investing in people's lives. Use your resources to do as much good as you can for the glory of God and the eternal good of others. Others who will go before you will welcome you home. So he's saying, 
use the, the things that you've been given now, whether it's financial resources, your time, talent, ability, as we talked about the last few weeks, whatever you have been given, use it now for the blessing of yourself and other people in their future, not just in the life that's in front of you now. And then even more than that, I'll add to that, using your wealth generously the way that he's talking about here prepares you for the kingdom of heaven because it honors God. You make friends with God himself by the way that you use your stewardship gifts here. Jesus said to his disciples before he left them, in my father's house are many rooms and I am going there to prepare a place for you. That is the eternal dwelling that we are after with our eternal friend, Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? How do we use our worldly wealth in a way that honors God and secures his friendship and is a blessing to other people? Well, we show it by our generosity of heart and it's demonstrated by pointing our wealth, pointing what we do have outward, not inward at ourselves. And so here's where Jesus clears up any confusion about whether he's suggesting that we should be dishonest in this life. He changes direction in verses 12 and, uh, 10 and 12 and reaffirms the importance of integrity when it comes to handling worldly wealth. He says, whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much, as you saw with the manager. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with the real riches of heaven? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, the blessing God has given you, who will give you property of your own? Jesus spent so much time in the scriptures, in his conversation with disciples, talking about this relationship between his people and money, because being faithful with money is like the proving ground for following God. It's like the, the, the test to see if, you're, if, if what you say you believe is really true, then it's going to show up in what you do with the gifts that you've been given. Multiple times, God contrasts serving God with money. Not with the devil, but with money. Again here, he personifies money as this alternative master for our hearts. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So the question is, will we choose to use the wealth that we have to prepare ourselves and other people for the kingdom of heaven? And that means that there are going to be moments in our life, in our financial lives, that are going to be a crossroads where we have to make a decision about whether we choose God or choose money. And those moments really come down to tests of generosity. Generosity is as much a spiritual discipline as prayer, as studying scripture, as attending worship services, what we do with, with our hearts when it comes to being generous with other people is a spiritual discipline that we have to work at. And most obvious crossroads comes to, to tithing. We are going to talk about this more in future weeks. Or I should say Don's going to talk about this more in future weeks. But the choice to give 10% or, or any significant amount of our income to the work of God drives a stake in the ground that says, this is hard, but I'm going to trust God with this. I'm going to be generous even if it feels hard. A choice for God like that to take a significant chunk and, and be generous with it, to give it to charity or give it to church or give it to something outside of yourself 
It's offensive to the money God. It's offensive to the part of you that is in pursuit of money. It means that you're going to have less in your pocket, and the part of you that loves money, and every part, every one of us has a part of us that does, is going to feel that choice deeply. It's going to say, wait, that's not in my best interest for that to go, right? This is the place where generosity is the spiritual discipline. The shrewd follower of Jesus knows that this life is not all that there is, that this life is fleeting, that everything we have comes from God, right? That, that he's the one who provides for our every need and that to be generous with what we have is the way of Jesus and bears fruit, not just now, but in the life to come. We know all these things for true. Jesus' point is that if we really believe that, then we should use the wealth we have to prepare ourselves and other people for the kingdom of heaven. So do you really believe that there is eternal life when we die, that there are these eternal dwellings that Jesus is talking about in this passage? If you do, then nothing you have now matters more than honoring God and caring for other people, right? If we really believe that, you know, as, as we just talked about, John Bloom went to be with the Lord, uh, Felix Quinones went to be with the Lord. They didn't get to take anything that they had with them to the other side. Nothing matters more than honoring God and caring for other people. Christian generosity, and I think this is hopefully becoming clear, Christian generosity should be as shocking as the shrewd manager's canceling of debts. People should look at the lives of Christians, the way that we use the resources that we've been given, and say, nobody saw that coming. Why in the world have they given so much to bless people around them? And throughout Christian history, this has been the case. Christians have been known for their generosity of time, of, of, uh, of money, of resources. Uh, we've established hospitals and educational centers throughout the world. We've done health care for people. We just sent somebody on a mission trip a few weeks ago when Margaret went. Christians have been known for our generosity of heart. Jesus is simply teaching his disciples and followers how to do this. Now, He's telling his followers, but they're not the only ones listening. There's also the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And so I want to close by calling attention to what the pastors of Jesus' time did when Jesus started talking about generosity this way. It says that they heard him teaching about worldly wealth and generosity, and they sneered at him, or literally, more literally, they turned up their noses. And he tells us it's because they loved money so much. It's ironic, but Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the supposedly religious people of his day, saying, what you highly value, religious leaders, is the same thing that people of the world highly value. He said, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly, that is what you value highly, is detestable in God's sight. So all the things that people in the world value highly, money, wealth, success, popularity, confidence, power, uh, pride, all of these things that we think the pursuit of money can get for us, we, we think we can create this sort of life on earth that is successful. 
We believe money is the path to all these things. And the lie people tell themselves, this is the same lie the Pharisees told themselves, is that these things are worth striving for, that they're the most valuable things in life. But what we learn from the parable is that money will always ultimately fail. Its benefit to us ends at the end of our life. And so don't value it so highly. Don't depend on it or sit on it. What should we highly value? Well, if we really believe that God has an eternal dwelling in store for us and that other people also need to know and hear about this kingdom of heaven that we have been given, then like the shrewd manager, we should use our wealth in this world generously to invite other friends into the kingdom of heaven and to prepare ourselves to be with the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Lord God, these are hard words. And so as we consider what it means to give our lives entirely to you. Lord, we pray that you'll cut to our hearts, that we would strive to see ourselves in this story. Are we the Pharisees who turn away from this truth? Are we the shrewd manager who's willing to give up everything uh, in order to secure a place after the end? Lord, will we be like Jesus' disciples who are willing to give up their entire lives to go Go to their graves in order to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and to see other people come to know him. Lord, may we be the people who have the generosity of heart to seek to to share the good news that you have given us with the people around us and to use all of the resources that we've been given, financial or otherwise, to glorify you and to care for other people well so that we can have friends uh, who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. Lord, we give all this to you and pray that you will Uh, open our eyes to see um, where we should change our lives according to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. When response